Mobi.co. This is the flagship pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this week kind of a grab bag episode. The market has kind of taken in a lot of really interesting signals this week and ended on the first down week we've had since SVB collapsed. It's nothing like, you know, the actual collapse back in March. Like, we're not seeing any sort of, like, big signals, but there's a bunch of diverse signals as the market gives up the gains it had in the past couple of weeks as we've sort of gotten off the high of AI mania. To help me unpack what's going on with a you know gradually more complicated market, as always, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, oh. and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Oh. Justin, man, what's good? Where are you calling from today, dude? Yeah, in New York today, a uh, bunch of meetings with investors, uh, try and figure out the market, see what's going on from other people's perspective. So a lot to chat through today. This week is definitely a little bit quieter, um, but there's still a lot of interesting narratives going on. So we have a lot to talk through today. Everything from crypto finally breaking through the 30K level, why the market's down this week, what it means, uh, potentially some huge news in the crypto world on the institutional side with some ETFs coming, uh, things we want to chat through with India, with Tesla, with inflation. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on and it's a, a good time to keep keep figuring it out and staying a step ahead. Exactly. Your main goal right now, audience, is to have that sort of long-term perspective, because when we talk about India, we'll be talking about sort of like a five-year time horizon, which is also us talking about China's not-as-good five-year time horizon. So a lot of stuff to unpack. So let's just start with like the most present news, right? Justin, we're currently watching the Dow sort of end 200 points down today, first down week we've had since March, as we've sort of like seen broad-based investor sentiment kind of flee the market, even though like the bad inflation news was last week and nothing's really changed in the fundamental sense here. As you're kind of looking at this again, there's no like general sector that's leading this downturn. As you watch this kind of um, downspring in the markets, is there anything kind of standing out to you in terms of like why the market's suddenly back to worrying? Are we just back to a recession watch again or what's the deal here? Yeah, I mean, exactly to your point. I mean, all three major averages are going to be set, assuming that the market stays the way it is to break what is ultimately a multi-week winning streak. Um, the S&P and the Dow have lost more than 1% each since the start of the week. And then NASDAQ's also down about 1%, which is more or less going to snap an eight-week winning streak. Um, so what's changed? Honestly, not all that much. I think a lot of catch-up is finally playing back into the market. And investors this week are definitely like thinking that there could be, you know, additionally fears of a U.S. recession, inflation's not going away, uh, and the Fed has clearly made it known this week and last week that they are going to do everything it takes to bring down inflation, and that means likely raising rates another few times this year and then keeping them elevated uh, probably until at some point in 2024, 2025, when they start decreasing rates. So, a period of high rates for an extended period of time is not good for stocks. Um, it's not good for business. It, it, debt is more expensive. Therefore, growth gets severely impacted uh, and consumers will spend less and are more incentivized to save. So it's been a narrative that hasn't changed much. Um, but after an eight-week winning streak and the Fed coming out and still saying this, we're starting to get you know maybe a little bit of not complacency, but a little bit of understanding um, that, hey, like maybe we shouldn't be going 100% bull sentiment. Um, so it's just kind of like a recorrection of of current narratives that have been playing out for some time. But at the end of the day, it's just one week. Next week can go flying up or something terrible can happen and go crashing down. 
investing week to week is not how how it's done. And so I would never read too much into any specific event or any specific week in the context of the broader scheme of the market. So, you know, I think long story short, the TLDR is there's nothing here that is giving us any significant pause and nothing here that's giving us any significant optimism. It's just going to be more of the same this week as investors continue to digest the news and the sentiment that comes out from the Federal Reserve. And when you look at sort of like the stock level information the market is trying to digest to audience, you can kind of begin to understand why people are beginning to pull back because a lot of this rally was driven by NVIDIA coming out and just demonstrating how massive the AI opportunity is. At the very beginning of earnings season for Q2, we got Meta, Uber, um, and then NVIDIA coming out showing just how much AI is going to fundamentally shift how labor is done at sort of the algorithm level. We're not talking about how AI is coming to take your jobs. We're talking about how AI is going to make developers massively more productive. So we're going to sort of supercharge the thing that was already driving the economy for the past 10 years anyway. Now we've seen sort of like the B squad of both AI and chips come out and say, here's how we're going to try to capture that opportunity. We got new chip uh, announcements from AMD. We have a huge slate of investment Intel is making to try to make Europe and Israel like the place where chip manufacturing happens. The market looked at that and basically sold off all of those stocks, seeing just how expensive it is going to try to catch up with the leads here. And so now everyone's concerned that maybe NVIDIA is overbought. Morgan Stanley came out this week and gut-punched Tesla, saying they're overbought as well. Um, Tesla's still hovering at exactly our price targets. So we're not really going to update our strategy on Tesla until some new developments come out that maybe we'll get into in a second. So when you watch this audience, it's simply that the, the market's feeling like things are a little bit overbought. We're pulling back to sort of normal here, and we're waiting on the next slate of good news, which at this point, I mean, I'm looking at the calendar, Justin, and it's basically going to be GDP data at the end of July and then earnings season. So we might be in the wilderness for a couple of weeks here, right? Is there anything we can look to in terms of the short term that can help, help us understand where the market's going to go? Like what's happening next week in terms of understanding like where our economy is and so much and so forth? Yeah, so the biggest thing to watch for next week is is a handful of factors. So... I know everyone always talks about the CPI and it is important, but the Fed really looks at the PCE inflation numbers, which is their preferred metric of inflation. So that'll come out mid to end of next week. Um, so that should have, again, there shouldn't be a massive deviation from last month, but it'll continue to help us understand um, what's causing prices to go up and or down. Um, so that will be, again, another telltale sign for are we on track? Are we not on track? Is something drastically going wrong? Or is, you know, things going exactly as planned? Uh, past that, there's a handful of earnings that are coming out next week that will just give us a better sense of how travel and how retail and how, you know, AI in general is doing. So on the retail side of things, cruises are reporting next week. So you have Carnival going on Tuesday. Uh, you have Nike going later in the week. Um, and these are, you know, two massive companies that will help us understand a, what the the travel is like, the travel sector is looking like, and B, are people spending money on like discretionary goods outside of services um, or experiences rather? So, on the cruise sides, we're expecting the numbers to be good. The stocks are up huge this year, and that's been a major theme for us. When we ended 2022, going into 2023, was a huge pickup in global travel. Uh, we've seen airline stocks do well, even in the face of increasing energy costs. Uh, we've seen hotel stocks do decently well. And so cruises are another one, especially that got especially, you know, really hit hard during the pandemic, because while you could get on a plane, while you could go to a hotel, being trapped on a cruise ship with uh, with thousands of other people just wasn't super appealing in the middle of the pandemic. So 
this is a stock that, you know, it's still down, but it has had a significant rally since the start of the year. So we'll be looking at that, understanding if our narrative just more broadly from travel is going to continue to persist. Uh, again, with Nike, understanding are people still spending money on goods, uh, athletic goods in particular, and understanding what the implications for retail looks like going forward. Our expectations are not from Nike specifically, but just in general, a bit of a pullback. That's what we've been forecasting this year. And then past that, I think one of the biggest things to watch for is what Micron reports. So Micron reports earnings next week. Um, and if you're not familiar with them, they're another chip manufacturer. The biggest in the space is obviously NVIDIA, and they're all somewhat differentiated, but um, the race for AI is is clearly on. And you know it is a bit of an overreaction. I'm sure there will be a correction. Um, but understanding what the space looks like outside of NVIDIA is important. Um, and so Micron is a, a key player to look at in the industry. At the end of the day, NVIDIA is just amazing at producing these chips, and it's not easy to do so. You know, not to get too much in the weeds of producing um, like semiconductors, but it is a very like laborious process, and it's hard to create the best ones at scale. And NVIDIA has just proven to be better than the rest. So we'll be very curious to see how Micron reports earnings, then ultimately what their outlook for the AI, you know, stocks are for the rest of the year and everything that is entailed there. Um, it's another key indicator as part of like a massive thematic trend in 2023 and beyond. Stocks up 30% year to date. So we'll probably see a continuation of that. But I think next week, just to summarize, looking at key earnings, looking at inflation numbers and just understanding how that's going to affect the markets going forward. And audience, as you try to unpack all of that and try to like see what we're watching as well, there's some key indicators you can be watching. First and foremost, like yes, Micron will be reporting earnings. We're going to be watching how expensive it, how expensive their operations are moving forward. One way Micron can make themselves a little bit more competitive in this space is obviously by finding ways to expand their operations in a way that certain state actors can take on a lot of those initialized expenses. Like they have a less efficient process, but if they have somebody help, you know, helping them pay for it, basically, and massively expand their operations, that's going to be huge, which is why yesterday's announcement, well, not announcement, but like sort of like plug of Micron's new investment in chip plants in India, as the U.S. and India are really cementing ties based on the state dinner that uh, Indian PM uh, Modi had at the White House. Um, seeing all of those ties kind of like come back together as the U.S. not necessarily divests from China, but diversifies its manufacturing international base. That's going to be really interesting to watch as well. And that can provide some lift for Micron as they begin to think about what their earnings are going to be and how they're going to try to keep up with NVIDIA. When you're watching Nike, again, you're probably going to see a pullback in spending as the U.S. consumer is finally, you know, getting a little bit of that slowdown. Like we're at over a trillion dollars in credit card debt and only skyrocketing. And that's a situation that's going to get way worse before it gets way better because interest rates just make credit card debt more expensive, like at a much faster rate. Uh, it's the worst kind of debt you can be in. God help you. Um, the main thing we're going to watch for Nike, if spending pulls back is inventory levels. Is Nike effectively liquidating their huge inventory glut? And that's something that's going to affect the entire industry because the main thing holding back a lot of these luxury retail stocks is they made way too much stuff in 2021 to try to make up for making nothing in 2020. And they're still holding on to so much inventory. And that's very expensive to hold on to. It's like these billion dollar gluts that just sit there and burn through your balance sheet and do nothing for you unless you like burn down your margins. So one thing we're really interested to see is if Nike's getting that under control. But to bring it all back to, it's just a matter of finding like which ways to look forward to in terms of what we're thinking about for the future. And we mentioned Tesla, Justin, um, 
One thing we're looking for at Tesla 2 is also their announcement about their potential for building chips for training their own AI so they can actually make full self-driving actually possible. just turns out it takes a lot more processing power. So the huge buzz right now is that Tesla's not going to be a competitor to NVIDIA, but they're going to try to take part of the AI equation, the training side, make their own chips for it. So that's going to really change our philosophy in terms of what Tesla's doing. But Justin, the thing I want to ask you about, of course, is the thing our audience is currently asking us about is um, what are your thoughts on Elon Musk potentially getting in a fist fight with Mark Zuckerberg over <laughs> Twitter? Like the dumbest possible thing we could be talking about, but it's the one we're getting the most questions about, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, the Tesla stuff, though, just like on a more serious note for a second, this has been a theme that we've been talking about for a very long time, and it's a vertical integration. Tesla has talked about even like mining setting up their own mining organization in order to like mine lithium and cobalt needed for the batteries. Now they're talking about, to your point, doing like the chip side of it, not taking market share away, but again, bringing it in-house. And that's really a massive theme for companies. Um, and not just Tesla, really every company uh, over the next, you know, probably decade plus is the, the theme of onshoring um, and just bringing things in-house and being vertically integrated just because Relying on third parties, while it can be cheaper at times, what we saw during COVID was it's not necessarily sustainable if there are countries that, you know, or companies rather that can't supply the things that you need to create your product. And then all of a sudden you're just left in this terrible position doing nothing due to not necessarily any sort of erosion of demand, but ultimately just an erosion of supply, which is an awful position to be in. So Tesla, yeah, they're they're looking to do this in order to continue to vertically integrate. And I think that's why they've continued to be a step ahead of everyone else. And that's why, in particular, we see Ford, we see a bunch of other people start to step into their network of superchargers because that's what they spent the last five to 10 years doing is building that up, you know, all around the country and all around the world. Um, and so that other people will have to come to them because, again, they are vertically integrated. They own all parts of the supply chain. So huge strategic advantage. They have the capital to do it. And again, why they continue to stay steps ahead of everyone else. But yes, the <laughs> the cage match is definitely on everyone's minds. If we can invest in UFC right now or the company that owns them, we probably would because uh, this is probably going to bring in, could be their biggest fight ever, which is hilarious if you actually think about it because it's, you know, more or less a joke, um, but who doesn't want to see Elon Musk, you know, stepped in the octagon? So it should be extremely interesting. We'll see, uh, you know, if it actually happens, I highly doubt it. But if it does, I mean, it, it'll definitely bring it. It's definitely going to be a money making event. I'll, I'll tune in. But at the same time, looking at the, not to be punny here, but the meta analysis of it every week, I am baffled by just the complete anti-strategic thought happening with Elon Musk in relation to his Twitter acquisition. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse because what's happening here is his cage matches in response to, first of all, them reacting a month and a half after really big rumors came out about Meta's new Twitter competitor, Threads, which is basically allowing you to port your Instagram, Mastodon, or any social media account into a Twitter-like experience controlled by the Zuckerverse, right? Um, that report came out at the beginning of June. It's at the end of June, and Twitter only started talking about it this week. So 
Elon Musk basically challenged Mark Zuckerberg to a cage match over it. Zuckerberg accepted it, and it's like the only thing in the news this week besides that the submarine imploding, which I don't even, don't even want to get into right now because it's probably flooding your podcast feeds, folks. That was a terrible fun. Anyway, um, not intentional. As we look into this, though, like all Elon Musk is doing is just shining an extremely bright lamp on his probably biggest competitor. Like when you're thinking about this, I, I can't figure out what's happening here. Is he just intentionally tanking Twitter? Is it like some like insurance scam at this point? Like everything he does just hurts the reputation of Twitter, it feels like, especially this, because it's only going to be like a gigantic advertisement for threads, which will eventually be Instagram's version of Twitter. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It baffles yeah, me. Yeah, no, it's pretty nuts. I mean, I'm sure Yuan has a, some sort of playbook in his back pocket outside of the fact that he just gets like literal enjoyment out of it. Um, but they fired like, you know, like a massive part of the company, like, Reports are there's only like 500 people really running the company now up from like, they were in the, you know, close to 10,000 employees at their peak. So, I mean, they're a private company. It doesn't really matter so much from an investing standpoint for us at the time being. But if they get a, if they're focusing on profitability, focusing on product, um, you know, I mean, in theory, he's doing a decent job. Who, who the hell knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, drawing more, more attention to your competitor, Definitely doesn't seem like a good idea. I'm not sure what the strategy is there. But then today, Elon Musk, outside of whatever genius he proves to be in the engineering world, he clearly is a PR master. I mean, think about the stuff he's done over the years. So I'd like to think that, you know, there's some sort of grand scheme in his back pocket that, uh, that the rest of us don't know about. I mean, it has to be at this point. It's either that or Elon realized that the time Twitter was the most valuable was when Donald Trump was on the platform, and he's just trying to be as divisive and as wild an experience that Donald Trump was on Twitter just to make sure he can maintain that kind of like top of mind value for the platform. It's the only other thing I can game out. Everything else is just utterly well, befuddling to me. Yeah, controversy <laughs> works. It, it, it that's, the, that's the social media way, right? So, I mean... We'll, we'll see how this works out. I mean, it's the media way, right? Anything that's a uh, controversy, like people love it. It's the same reason why Netflix releases a new show about murderers every single week. It's people just eat it up. Meanwhile, I have heard literally zero news about Post Dot News and Blue Sky, which is Dax Dorse, Jack, Dak Dorsey's, Jack Dorsey's new play to get back in the Twitterverse. So obviously, you know, these kinds of things work out. But the fact that Mark Zuckerberg has been training like in judo and jujitsu for the past five years and Elon Musk has just been on Twitter the whole time. Again, like you said, very entertaining fight, very short fight, probably. Let's be real. Um, but I'm really excited if it actually goes down. Let's get into things that the market actually cares about, though, since we can't really invest in Twitter. We obviously made out like bandits with our Twitter investment because uh, Elon came in and like uh, gave us like 25% back where the stock was when he bought it. Sick. Um, but let's get back into actual markets because it's an actually exciting time to be in certain sectors of the markets as well. And that's crypto. Bitcoin is now uh, in the past five days, but we're up 20%. We're sitting at 31K, living, living well. We're finally getting more and more uh, crypto wallets out from being underwater. That is, we're finally getting people making money in the crypto space again. Obviously, a lot of people bought at the top of 2021 and are still like 50% down. But, you know, things are going great. We have a lot of really great news coming out of the crypto space. JP Morgan has JPM coin now, which is like an infrastructure blockchain play for like making payments in Europe. Uh, but the more exciting news, Justin, is we have the BlackRock ETF that's been filed for. One of the biggest financial institutions in the world has filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And there are rumors that Fidelity is about to join them. So can you kind of help me unpack this kind of confusing moment? Because two of the biggest financial institutions in the world are jumping into a big part of the crypto space. 
a week after the SEC declared war on Binance and Coinbase. Can you kind of take me through that and like, is this, you know, people who are smarter than us knowing more than us? Or is this like them taking advantage of a moment of weakness? Or is it just like, maybe we're going to get some positive rulings out of both Binance and Coinbase and get these ETFs out? Like, is this something that could actually happen since BlackRock has so much pull? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And the outlook for the crypto space is also just tied into this in general. So just kind of taking a little bit of a 10,000 foot view and then diving into your question more deeply. But if you think about crypto fundamentally, you know, the promise has been that it's a medium of transaction. It's a store of wealth. It's anti-inflationary. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this in the live and or recorded version has heard it a thousand times. I don't need to dive into the details. I think what has proven to be true over the years is the inflation thing is a little back and forth, um, but and and the ability for it to be a medium of transactions, especially for Bitcoin specifically, is likely not the case. It's not scalable. There's too much latency. If you're going to your local, you know, grocery store and you want to pay with crypto, you know, who's going to want to sit there for five, ten minutes until the transaction gets approved? Basically, no one. Um, so the biggest like use case for for Bitcoin, not crypto, but for Bitcoin, as of now, is really just the store of wealth. And so with other assets doing pretty poorly, you know, crypto has done decently well this year. It's it's up significantly. It just crossed a resistance line of 30,000. And now to your point, a lot of wallets are back in the green. And there's a lot of things feeling this right now. Um, the markets are up huge this year. It's a risk on assets. So there's obviously some correlation there. Um, but then I think within the last week, or two weeks rather, to your point, the SEC rains down and basically declares war on Binance, Coinbase, and just the entire crypto industry. And then at the same time, BlackRock comes out and says that they're going to launch a Bitcoin ETF, or the hopes are to launch one. They have to still get it approved. Um, this announcement, I think two things that are important. The first is that this isn't an overnight announcement. BlackRock has clearly been working on this for a very long time understanding the regulatory framework, probably spent an absolutely insane amount of money um, with consultants, with legal teams to figure out like the implications of doing this, uh, and then operational and tech teams on how do you actually implement this. And so I think, you know, this decision was made long before the SEC declared war on them. Um, I think the timing of the announcement is very interesting because while they've been working on this clearly in the back end for a while, you know, they didn't have to release this announcement next week. They could have waited a week. They could have waited a month. They could have decided to push it off until um, as long as they wanted to perpetuity because they have an insanely large balance sheet. So it's not like they need to do this tomorrow. So I think from BlackRock's perspective, I think the reason for the announcement was crypto is getting hurt right now. Um, they clearly the SEC is not fond of a lot of the current exchanges. Um, and there hasn't been an ability for an ETF to be approved to date. So I think they're probably looking at this and probably have a little bit of inside baseball knowledge that we're not privy to, but probably thinking there's a really good chance they can push this along, you know, uh, push this to the finish line um, and start to get institutional adoption in a point of when there's starting to be more and more interest in crypto in general since the price is up so much. So if you think about the institutional side of it, you know, looking at some of their other funds. Um, so iShares, which is their ETF program, one of the largest ETF providers in the world. Their large, one of their largest funds has like hundreds of billions of dollars. So we don't think it would be that big in terms of net assets under like the net asset value of the fund. But what we do think it'd be probably more similar 
to their gold ETF or other ETFs that are tracking commodities. And given the size of those ETFs relative to the size of the crypto market, if enough assets poured in from a, from a, real, from a retail and institutional perspective, it would probably end up being anywhere from like 1% to 5% of the entire market cap of Bitcoin. That's how much like moving power they have. And so I think right now when they're starting to see more interest in crypto pick back up, they're starting to see that other players are not favored by the SEC. And they're starting to see that they could really like more or less move these markets. I think it's probably a very opportune time for them to come in uh, and try and get something like this approved. It's realistically months away from happening, even if it does happen. Um, and I think for them, this could end up being, you know, a pretty big me- needle mover for them if they have first mover advantage and can really own like institutional uh, adoption, you know, through commoditized products for crypto related instruments. I think it's uh, a very interesting timing. And, you know, if there's another crypto bull run over the next year or two, they're definitely going to be in an amazing position to capitalize over this, which, again, they haven't publicly stated this, but this is probably what's going on in the back end. It's one of those things where it's like brilliant timing and it's just like really exciting as somebody who, you know, thinks a lot about investing in this space and is trying to figure out the best ways to make money in this space. Because the number one way is just to have institutional money come in, take over and, you know, ride that wave, so to speak. So really exciting to see how that goes. Of course, regulation will slow crypto down, but at least make crypto a more sustainable project moving forward and that's the main thing we're watching for we're watching for actual utility in the crypto space and we're watching for sustained development because it's one of those things where yes there is a whole mountain of scams in crypto but other than that there's a lot of really interesting utility being developed as well and not only that like the fact that there is development happening there is intrinsic value to that kind of labor and therefore that's what we're watching as we think about altcoins as well so we're going to start picking back up and thinking about our crypto portfolio as this news persists right um as we look at that though like that's the main thing you have to do you kind of have to look at these things sector by sector because we're entering back into the volatility phase of the air quotes downturn is it the turnaround is the recovery hard to say we definitely will have a better picture of it once we see how well the u.s gdp grew in q2 once that information comes out round about the end of july but until then we're just trying to sort of sift through the noise and try to understand what's happening really interesting time in terms of earnings next week but the main thing of course is seeing if the economy is slowing down too much are we in the soft landing mode hard to say we've been in the feds moment of truth for about two months now we're going to stay there for another couple of months as well as we see if this has worked or not or you know put us into an actual recession regardless justin once again totally baffled that this has been half an hour but um any final thoughts from you before we before we go ahead and read the credits here anything we missed here that we think is super important to cover for this week or can we just save some more uh deep dive updates for next week dude yeah, I think we covered a lot of good stuff today. The only other thing that I'd want to address very quickly is just about, uh, you know, the new relationships, or not necessarily new relationships, but the forming of additional relationships uh, politically uh, and from a business perspective with India, uh, given what's going on with China right now. And so if you missed it, you know, uh, people from from the Indian side are coming over to America, meeting with companies, meeting with politicians in order to kind of further cement their relationships here um, and try and expand their reach here. I think the interesting thing about India is it's a very split up country um, that they're looking for their interests over others. And that's why historically they haven't done a great job like integrating in uh, to the rest of like basically the global economy. But now I think they're seeing an interesting opportunity where they're going to try and more or less charm America and try and get more business opportunities here. We talk about this a lot more on the site, but this is uh, 
on our website or via our app. But this is definitely something that's a more probably longer term theme that you and I have talked about at length. Exactly. I think it's really important to realize too, audience, like as people sort of like build sort of bull sentiment for investments happening in India right now, you have to remember that you can't really treat India as a solid unit the way you might treat the US or even or, or China even like the Indian population is 1.4 billion people. It's a billion people and then more people in the United States on top of that. So a lot of the most really salient regulation and salient investment actually happens on the state level, i.e. you want to be investing in specific states in India. Their central government exists and is very powerful, obviously, but it's one of those things where this is the start of a very long process. So we're very excited to see a bunch of stuff. Uh, NASA and the Indian Space Program working together. There's going to be Indian astronauts on the moon as part of the Artemis Program. Hell yeah, brother, that rules. GE building fighter engine jets in India as well. Sick. Micron doing some massive semiconductor investments in very specific regions in India as well. There's a lot of really exciting development happening. But the thing that's really interesting is, of course, we just had a meeting with Xi Jinping and Anthony Blinken as well. So we're not saying that like you can't invest in India and then divest from China, but it's clear that all these tech leaders are thinking, rethinking how they're going to be doing manufacturing moving forward. And a lot of people are starting to really think about like a not as prominent China in the future as we sort of watch the rise of India here. Like China isn't potentially in demographic decline, whereas India is absolutely skyrocketing. So a lot of really important things to watch here, um, but we need to really unpack that a lot because it's an extraordinarily complex situation. To tell you one direction that's blowing in is to try to distill 1.48 billion people down into something that's really easy to talk about. This is the most one of the most complex topics moving forward as we think about international relations, the reshoring issues, and sort of these long-term trends we're watching. So it's something we're unpacking right now. You can begin to understand some of our long-term perspective, obviously, audience if you go over and check out our app, app.mobi.co, download the app, get a better sense of what we're thinking about long term, because that's the main game we have to be playing right now as we really enter into sort of the volatile phase of what is potentially the reemergence of bull times or, you know, just a brief kind of extended bull trap before we get back to, you know, recession talk. Like we got a bunch of, as JP Morgan just described, unknown unknowns looming over the market. Is there a giant bomb in commercial real estate? Will consumer credit run out and we just run out of spending over the course of the next six months? That remains to be seen, but it's a very interesting time in the market. Regardless, audience, I mean, I think it's a pretty solid place to end it. We're always just going to be looking forward and thinking about where we're moving in terms of that long-term perspective. So again, check us out over at app.mobi.co. But just so you know, audience, this podcast was produced, hosted, and voiced by me, Peter Starr. All the intellectual value you got from this podcast comes from our analyst team, which is headed up by Justin Kramer, our CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at mobi.co. If you want to get more of our sort of day-to-day perspective, check us out over at Instagram and TikTok, where we sort of unpack the data behind the market on a day-by-day basis. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to our email list, which is just where we give you as much information as we possibly can about the sort of pulse check day by day as we move through the volatile phase of this market. Regardless, audience, we really appreciate your time. Thanks you must thank you so much for listening. And as always, we like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.